Welcome to the intro. I'm Bob Galen. Did you not hear me when I said welcome to the intro? No, I didn't hear you. <laughs> All right, Metacasters. Clearly, we're confused, but this is the intro. Josh, what are what are we introing? Yes. So we are introing our uh, topic that we discussed at Red Hat Agile Day, where we stood up in front of a room and asked everybody to write their questions on note cards and pass them to us, and we'll answer them as rapid fire as we can. We did that for about an hour. Uh, this session is that recording. So we enjoyed it. We had a good time. We really enjoy the customer-driven nature of the approach. Again, we're trying to give people exactly what they need to go back to their offices and uh, keep making a greater difference. I think it was a. I think it was a good event. I mean, I, hats off to Red Hat for doing that, for inviting us, and for allowing us to do a weird presentation, which is a non-standard presentation. Yeah. We we did a live. We we couched it as a live metacast. So that's and that's what it was. We took questions from the audience. I heard nothing but positive feedback, Josh. Even St Stephen yeah. Denning, Stephen Denning, who was the keynoter of the event, uh, pulled me aside and he said he really liked the flow of the thing and the different questions. Um, and and I, I think it's a great format. So, Vendicasters, on to the on to the Red Hat episode. Oh, hold, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, whoa! Hold on, buddy. Hold, did I jump? Hold, did hold I jump the your horses, Woo! sir? All right, all right. Uh, let's not forget. Oh. that in the next week or so, Bob and I are going to be together in Orlando. And be, you, you can join us. So please join us at, at in Orlando at Agile Dev, Better Software, DevOps. East. Yes. It is a tech world conference. So if you've been listening to any of our episodes, you do know that they sponsor us and they you do know that we have a really, really good discount code. Not 200 bucks off. It's twenty percent off. Twenty percent off. Twenty percent off. What's what's the code, Josh? MC twenty. I thought you were going to say MC Hammer. It's like <laughs> no. Hammer Time. No MC twenty. It is Hammer Time. If you want to get there and see us, you better hammer down. Yeah, and use you that better code and go make it happen. You better make it happen. Absolutely, Josh. Thank you for holding me back there. I, I that's an important event. Uh, I mean, it's worth the price of admission just to see you and I. You know, one quick thing before we go well, into the just me. before we go into the episode, I never realized, Josh, how geometrically different you and I were until I saw us in the Red Hat video. There are some distinct, <laughs> there are some distinct differences, like in height and and don't you think so? Yes, there are. I, I look like like I look like a little. Like what was the Lord of the Rings character and, and like you a look, hobbit or a dwarf? Like a hobbit. I look like yeah. a hobbit or a dwarf. Yeah. And you're like what? You're like the wizard or something like that. Did you know? Did Majestic that Gandalf. That's me. So normally when we do the Medicare, we're sitting down. So I feel like an equal yeah. citizen. I did not. <laughs> I did not feel that way, man. You remember? I'm sorry. I said, remember when I said something about uh, what was it? Uh, sumo outfits. Remember that, Josh? You did want to do sumo, and I said, Bob, that's a bad idea. Well, now, in retrospect, looking at the size difference, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> I don't know. I was, thank you, Josh, for saving my life. I yeah. appreciate that. All no right. problem. Just on trying to, the, to keep your insurance premiums low. <laughs> on to the episode, Metacaster. Right. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>
Okay, so uh, we are Bob Galen and Josh Anderson. He's Bob Galen. I'm Josh. Uh, we've done 120 episodes. 120 plus episodes of yep. something called the Metacast, which is a podcast for about uh, seven years, seven plus years. Um, so, uh, and it's customer driven. We get questions. It's been good. We've had a lot more questions lately um, that have been driving our content. So this is this is what we do. We get questions either. I have a question with how things are going at work, and I say, Bob, we got to figure this out, and he helps me, and we talk about it, and we share it, um, and so this is just an extension of that. Um, I've been to a lot of talks where it sounds exciting. Uh, it sounds like something that would help me, but it turns out not helping me directly, so selfishly, I want sessions that help me directly, so I thought we'd come up with a session where you bring your question and we answer it. Hopefully we give you the answers. Hopefully we pick it because we've got a lot. Um, so we'll get through as many as we can. But keep them coming. We're going to try to go through them quickly. We'll try to keep it terse, right? Well. Which will be hard for me, but I'll try. I can do that. You can't. So, okay. okay. So start with the first one. Yeah, the first one. How to get teams slash individuals to not fear failure. So who all feels like this is a problem? Raise your hand. It's okay. This is a safe place. This is Raise a safe place. Raise your hand. It's so okay. not too many. Right. Okay. So there's a lot of failure in the room. Cool. Right. So he's bringing up uh, so hierarchy. He's also bringing up a blame culture or a single wrinkle neck. Anyone ever work in an environment where that's product some, owners, right? Right. Well, it could be the product owner, yeah. but people were look. I've worked in in organizations where the leaders, the senior leaders, they want to know who failed in the in the scrum team. If that makes sense, like who was at fault, uh, things like that. So. Let's yeah, get, so when I started, how do we, the, how do we, how do we create a non-fair? Can I go? Yes. Okay. Uh, so it's always like this. For those of you that haven't been with us, we're always like this. Could um, you answer the question? I, yes, sir. Okay. Uh, so the thing I've done is just talk about it. Sometimes it's best to talk about it and put it out there. I actually had an experience. Some people on that side of the room were there when I talked about failure is okay. The problem is we then whiplashed to that became the reason we did everything. Well, Josh, you said it was okay to fail, and we're failing. You should be happy, right? And it got to the point where I had to remind folks, we're actually here to win. Like, winning feels good. Winning is more fun. Winning is how you get customers. So it's this thing where it's not normal to talk about failure. So I find that if you talk about it, get people getting comfortable with the idea that there is failure, and then what do you do with it, that, that reaction is the key, but you've got to be careful because people will like rubber band to the other side of what well, you said. Failure was good. We're failing. That's like five failed sprints in a row. That's what you wanted, right? It's like, no, that's not what we want. We want you to not be afraid to try things, but also when you fail, you've got to learn what did you learn and then how do you change that and go forward? I'd, I'd say emphasize learning. Uh, so instead of, I'm, I'm not opposed to the F word. I actually like using failure in organizations and just looking it in the eye. And, and acknowledging failure and then men equating it to learning. Uh, and and so to me, the failure is not learning from your failures, if that makes sense. So I, I'm pretty uh, focused on not repeating failures. That to me is, ba is badness. Uh, but the learning part of it is, is sort of uh, cool. The other thing to encourage it is leaders to not fear. So I think there's this thing where leaders should model the behavior. So there's a notion that culture 
organizational culture starts with leaders um, and whatever behaviors they reinforce or they encourage. So I think if you want a, a failure-friendly environment where we're learning, we're creating, we're innovating, the leaders have to create that. The leaders have to encourage it. So for example, in a sprint review or a sprint demo, if a team, if a team fails, I would say you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't abuse them. Like it would be terrible leadership behavior to start looking for who's to blame. Everyone with me? Uh, but if you could actually applaud it, then you could uh, encourage it and talk about what did we learn from it from a leadership perspective. The other thing is throw yourself under the bus as a leader, like creating space. Very often I think leaders have to create space for things. So actually share your failures. And, and, and trust me, we all have failed and we continue to make mistakes. So as a leader, if you can show that, hey, I failed and you can explain that to folks. And yes, I'm not fired or anything. I mean, nothing bad has happened. I've learned from it. Well, now you're, you're role modeling the cultural dynamics that you want to encourage. Yeah, to me, it's just put it on the table. Don't be afraid to talk about it, right? You've got to talk about it get people comfortable with it. They're not going to be comfortable with it right away. So we've got to be patient, but put it on the table. Talk about it often. Celebrate it. Yep. Fail, fail yourself, but then also set that model of, I failed. Here's what I'm doing differently. Okay, team, I let you down. I did something wrong. I did a bad thing, but here's what I'm going to do about it. So set that example, and then teams will follow. The other thing, the one final point on it is it's the entire leadership team. I worked at a one company and a team failed, I actually asked the team to fail or I asked the teams to take on risk and one of the teams failed miraculously. They really, like they bit off 25 points and they only delivered one. So they, they were like a plane that crashed in flames and they got up in the demo and they talked about it. And there were some C-level people in the, in the audience, C as in uh, C, letter Charlie uh, level people. And uh, they started berating the team. They started uh, questioning their professionalism. They started questioning their integrity. Does that make sense to everyone? Right in front of everyone. There was a lot of people in the room. And I had to jump up and defend the team. Not be defensive, but defend the, defend the team and bring people back to center. And I think that takes courage sometimes. Not, not that I'm applauding myself, but some, we have to defend teams that are doing that until the entire leadership team gets it. So not everyone is going to get it on a leadership team at the same place. And that's part of the culture shift. Okay. Next excellent. one. Yep. What do you got? I, you're the product owner. Were you were you working. I just deliver. Yeah. Sorry. You reorganized the. Oh. I was trying to. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> How to go from Scrum Master to Agile Coach? Oh, that's a fun one. Um, so one of the things that I talk about with Scrum Masters and Richard, Charles, some other folks, uh, I've I've said to them as they were a Scrum Master on one of our teams, I said your job is to put yourself out of a job. That's good. That's kind of scary to hear, but a really good scrum master gets a team to think like a scrum master every day. So they aren't the ones in meetings and ceremonies leading everything, asking all the tough questions. They are in the process of growing people to where they get comfortable asking those hard questions of their peers and saying, hey, why aren't we doing this? Or why is that story still, still there? Sometimes scrum masters are the only ones saying that. When that happens, that's a problem, right? You aren't really getting a self-directed team, you're getting a scrum master directed team. That doesn't scale well. So what happens when you get a really successful scrum master, that team is a bunch of scrum masters themselves. So then what do you do? Then you move up and you start coaching multiple teams because you don't need to spend every ceremony with that team forever because you're just not adding a lot of value because you've done a really good job. So now it's how do I kind of guide these four and five different teams? Okay, I've got four and five different teams going. Um, now what do I do? Now it's 
organizational. What kind of coaching can I do across the org? How do I help the product owners? How do I help the managers? How do I help the directors? How do I help the executives um, actually figure out how to do the right thing? Right? Because that's coaching up is a hard thing. That's something that we all struggle with, but that's a thing that an agile coach can start doing. I, I personally don't think there's like a, a stepping stone from uh, Scrum Master to Agile Coach. Whenever, I mean, since I've been around Scrum for years, when I look at a Scrum Master, I'm expecting them to coach, if that makes sense to everyone. I, I look at that being an inherent part of their role. Now, they're not doing enterprise-level coaching. They're not coaching the, the CEO. That might be, or they can, but, but it might be dangerous to do that. So it's, but, but I think they coach, I encourage them to coach, certainly they coach at a team level. And certainly, if they're a senior scrum master, they coach other scrum masters or cross teams, if that makes sense to everyone. I wouldn't inhibit them from doing that uh, because they're, they're called a scrum master versus an agile coach. So I think it's an inherent part of that, the role and dynamic to the degree that they have that skill. And then I think they should be sharpening the saw and improving their coaching capability over time. So, so that's, you know, you can be, I think a scrum master evolution is probably less scrum master evolution and more coaching evolution. And it's really, you have to evolve to meet the needs of the organization. Yeah, it's situational. Right? It's right. not that all of a sudden you're now an agile coach. It's the needs of the org have changed. You don't have to teach teams how to do a stand-up, how to do a retro, how to do sprint planning, because they've done it 50 times. They know how to do it. So now the org, the org needs you to do something different. So where should I focus now? It's those types of things where you transition out of that traditional scrum master role to more of a coach. Yeah. Here's an addition, or it, it dovetails, so I thought we'd do it. Scrum master has become a buzzword thrown around loosely today. Define what a true scrum master role is. What are some key characters, characteristics of a successful scrum master? So building on what we said, we don't have to repeat what we said. So yeah. other things, what do you think? Yeah, so, th so this is clearly a common theme. We, we just did an episode about, um, what do we call it? Uh, scrum master confusion or role, role, confusion, role confusion where I'm a scrum master and a developer. I'm a scrum master and a tester. I'm a scrum master and a manager. All of those things. So a scrum and, master, actually and, and, and there's yeah, people yeah. out there that have like four or five roles, right? Yeah. Right. So a scrum master, I always view as the shepherd, right? They have that stick. Oh, that's a good analogy. Sometimes they have to use the stick. Hopefully they don't have to do it a lot. Maybe it's just kind of like grabbing a sheep and moving it along, not hitting the sheep. Right. But it's it's there's times where you have to do that. Right. And you have to have you have to have the courage to me. Being a really good scrum master is about courage and having the courage to say the uncomfortable things. The things that need to be heard, that it kind of sucks when you're the person that has to say it. Right. There have been a bunch of times where I'm like, oh, shit, I got to do my job. I got to go tell somebody or a team they're not doing a good job. And that's not fun. But you know what's your responsibility to do that. Because if you don't, that team won't get better. And then what happens? Then they start to get worse. And that's your job. And, th and then your job gets harder, right? If a team's struggling, you can catch it at the beginning and say the uncomfortable thing. You can get them corrected. But if you let it go on, then getting that team going back in the right direction gets harder because they've built up some bad habits. So to me, we've talked about this a lot. It's really about courage and being able to speak up at the right time. I mean, there's a book by Jeff Watts, uh, G-E-O-F-F -F Watts, uh, called Scrum Mastery. Uh, he's done a product owner mastery book. Uh, in there, associated with that book, he has like 20 statements, patterns that you can mine off of Google, where he talks about a good Scrum Master does this and a great Scrum Master does this. There's like a good to great sort of view. 
Um, so a, a good a good scrum master, an example, uh, holds the team accountable. A great scrum master teaches the team to hold each other accountable. Does that make sense to everyone? So the accountability shift is just one example of that. If you want to know good scrum mastery, I actually would encourage you to grab that list. Uh, if you're in a role, a coaching role or scrum master role, and sort of grade yourself, where am I at on those scales from a, from an evolution perspective and find out what your weaknesses are and then start attacking. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful view of sort of a holistic view of maybe 20 patterns of great scrum mastery. Don't get caught. I wouldn't share it in an organization and grade each other. So this is not a grade the organization scrum masters model. I'm just saying this is a personal thing where you're coaching yourself. Next one. Why is there still crying in Agile? Uh, no buy-in. Uh, so hashtag no buy-in upstream. Yeah. You want me to go? Yeah, please. Okay. I don't even understand. I mean, I, I, I know what crying is, but. Well, that's yeah. the baseball reference, right? It's playoff is it, season. Oh, so, so you're a sports guy. Sure. So, okay. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's just because it's hard. It really is. To do it right, it's really hard. And to do it right um, for buy-in upstream, you really have to trust. And unfortunately, upstream, there's not a lot of trust in teams. And I think it's just historically the way business operated as frustrating as that is, it's just command and control was the thing. So if you go back to factories, right, and you would punch in and you would have to clock in and you'd have to do all those things. And some developers may have worked places where like you had to check in and check out and you had to say, hey, I was here at eight and I was out at five and all those things, right? That's a, that's a historical thing of way we worked. We haven't been able to shed that yet. That's very frustrating to me because I've shed it, but it doesn't matter if my boss didn't shed it, then I got to fight that fight. But it's just the reality of our history. And that's how work was done. And now thought work that we do is different, right? We aren't stamping the same thing out every time. If you are, that's a really boring job. You'll probably go find a different one. But it's just, it starts with trust and start with trusting that the people you're hiring know what they're doing and they have the right intentions. But for some reason, upstream hasn't learned or many, there are many that have learned, but unfortunately there are many companies that haven't learned to really trust the team and trust that the people you're paying want to do a good job and they want to be proud of what they built. But I don't know why they haven't figured that out. You're, you're older than me. Maybe you know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I, one of the things I do do in my coaching is I, I do this personal root cause analysis. Everyone know what I mean? Like the five whys or something or fish bones or there's different methods and tools for doing root cause analysis. And I often mentally do it. I don't share it with anyone, but I'm like, there's a problem that I encounter with a client or there's a problem I encounter or, or I observe something and I do, I do a root cause and, and probably 80 to 90% of the time, the root cause is trust, uh, 360 degree trust. So what I'm weighing in with Josh, I agree with him. I, I don't know if we realize how, how trust or a lack thereof permeates agile transformation. Uh, and we have to sort of improve that. Now, a couple of techniques that I don't know if we if we focus on enough is transparency, uh, if that makes sense to everyone. It's like we have this responsibility to be fully transparent and fully engaged in Agile, right? Be transparent with everything that we do uh, and not hide everything. So transparency, I think, is our friend. Uh, Truth-telling uh, at a team level, in, in demos, in everything we do. Truth-telling at a team level and in truth-telling upward, even though it's challenging to do that. We use the word courage. It's actually pretty hard sometimes to tell a senior leader 
that it's not the project isn't green, it's red. Does that make sense to everyone? Right. But but we know it's we know it's red and they have a and they actually should know because it, it puts them in a position of if the earlier we let them know, the, the more they can take action. So I would say trust permeates is in my it's it's out there. And, to, and try to sort of get information going so that folks understand what's going on. The demo, the sprint demo, I find a lot of folks really don't amplify the sprint demo as much as they should. It's like it's a, it's a wonderful place to show, to show stuff, not just to show software, but to show state, to show stuff. Uh, has to go into uh, follow-up. Go ahead. you have a follow-up? Yeah. Um, oh. It's too late. Sorry. <laughs> so, You're getting recorded. So, so hurt. So hurt. Um, I hear this a lot about senior leaders and senior management needs to trust the teams, but it's a two-way street. The teams have to earn trust. And I don't think there's enough emphasis put on that. You talked about failure. So I'll stop early. you right there. I'll stop you. Uh, it's our show a little bit. Yep. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to passionately disagree with you. Okay. I think over time we have to do that, but I think in the beginning, yes, that sort yes. of trust, but verify crap is yes. not a trust model. So if we enter, if we're trying to transform the organization and we've never trusted the teams ever, and then we say it's a two-way street. To me, that's a smokescreen to say I'm not going to change our trust model. So what I encourage leaders to do is to extend trust. The Covey work looks at this. They talk about extending trust initially. So now we feel trusted, the team feels trusted, and then we level set it. But the team the, has to continue to earn that trust by not continuing to fail. They have to be able to learn from their failure. And they have to show that they know how to learn. From but if you hang it out as a carrot very early on when we're trying to transform, if you've not trusted them for 20 years, we're going to hang that carrot out there and they're, and they're going to trust. No, we have to extend it to create that landscape where, where leaders, I think, really have to take a risk and extend it and mean it to start the transformation and then to pull I'm back. I'm talking about start. I'm talking about. So, we're, we're, so, so we, we just agree to disagree. Cool. But you're wrong. <laughs> That's 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 you can have your opinion, sir. Thank you. Uh, what do you think about safe? How have companies failed using safe? Bob, how do you feel about safe? <laughs> I mean, I, I struggle. I struggle with safe. I think I think Steve said something about frameworks this morning. I forget the quote, but it was like frameworks are not the answer. Right. Uh, scaling frameworks or any framework. If you're just hang, hanging on the framework uh, and that's not changing the culture. You're, you're replacing something with a framework. I'm paraphrasing badly, but everyone remember that? Uh, that's my struggle with SAFE is, I mean, I was at a conference last week and, and people were talking about SAFE, like they were going SAFE. And, and so they were going Agile, but they replaced it with SAFE. And I talked about XP practices, but they, they didn't know XP practices. They were like, but it's SAFE. So, so SAFE was the synonym for everything. I talked about Scrum. I talked about Kanban. I talked about continuous deployment. I talked about stopping the line mindsets. Everyone with me, sort of ownership, uh, self-directed teams. And the answer was, well, no, 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 you don't understand. We're doing safe. Like it's like Prego, right? It's all in there. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, <laughs> and that's what, that's what I, that's what I struggle with is, is for a lot of organizations, probably for most organizations. I don't know if that's the right way to go. Now, I would love it if you had a, you know, a grassroots over time, very healthy, Agile transformation, and if you if you grew up, and then safe was the answer that came out, then I would be like, cool. Safe evolved out is the answer, uh, but it grew up from the team, it grew up from the organization, it grew out of that need. But it's that's not the way it's adopted. It's it's like a top down initiative. Very often we're going to go safe. Yeah, safe is so. Not so the I I struggle with it. Yeah, safe safe is not the problem. We are. 
you are the problem. We are the problem, right? We are hoping for this Nirvana framework that solves all of our problems. Does every product look the same? Does every team look the same? Does every customer base look the same? So it's not context-driven right. at all, right? Does every market you're serving look the same? No. So don't expect one fr one framework to solve all of your problems. How many people remember RUP, Rational Unified Process? Probably not very many. But RUP, but Safe like in Safe and looks like RUP to me. It looks it's that same thing. Here's a I remember like you buy this big Guma server with a lot of guidance, and then you bring it in and you install it across you know thousands of people, and then you think it's going to guarantee success or just follow the server, follow the guidance, and Safe sort of feels that way. Right. So if you're looking for a process that you can blindly follow. And expect that's going to take you to the promised land. You've already failed. But go for it, right? But well, go ahead at your own peril, right? But it, it's if you do that, you're going to fail. You, you just have to. So agile isn't necessarily about a process. Also, you can learn to be agile with your process. Don't waterfall your process and have it be, oh, well, we've decided we're going safe. So come hell or high water, it's going to be safe in five years. Maybe you've learned. Cool. Maybe it's not the right answer. You've got to learn to adjust, just like you want your backlog to adjust. You have to adjust your process. Or agile work across an organization, they like to cherry pick certain things, and could it be that just safe framework seems to be the buzzword of the day? Maybe? But it's, it's easy to pick, right? It's easy, I mean, particularly for leaders, right? It's easy to buy. It's easy to pick. I'm done. Now it's those pesky team members. That's It's their problem. Yeah, yeah. Again, I, I'm not trying to be too hard on safe. I know there's probably some safe folks, and, and there are aspects of it that I think are powerful, like uh, PI planning, anyone, big wall planning, PI planning, getting a group together to commit to work. I think that's actually pretty cool, but that's like an agile centric. To me, it's a collaborative process to get this sort of the shared mindset of the team. So you could pick things from safe that I think are fairly, fairly powerful, a few of them. But but people don't pick them that way. They pick they like I said, and it's getting worse. They're picking the box and ignoring everything else. Like there's a lot of shared wis there's shared wisdom in Scrum, there's shared wisdom in Kanban, and like be and there's shared wisdom in XP practices and understanding when and where and how to apply them. Uh, here's a fun one: how how to know when it's time to leave an organization. So before before I go on, is it okay? We're trying to do um, breadth over depth. Is that okay with everyone? So we're trying to get more questions. So that's why we're sort of shutting people down. Not that we don't care, not that we're merciless, but it's now if you want us to go depth, then we could do one card for the next 45 minutes. Well, we minutes. can do that with our podcast. So I say we stick with that. If there's a topic you want, talk we'll, to us. We'll, we'll take talk it, about it for We'll mine minutes. these, yeah. And the ones we don't get to, we're going to mine to the podcast, okay? Yeah. So, so you'll be there. Uh, so how to know when it's time to leave an organization that is fighting against Agile? That's a fun one. So I'm going to give you... I feel like it's the same answer I've been giving you. It depends. So no, I, I know it's terrible, and I feel like I'm not actually answering the question. No, that was terrible. Question. That was terrible. I know, I know. So Bob and I first met working at Teradata. I had been there for a year or so. You came in, and you're like, "Holy crap, this place is a disaster." I'm out. It wasn't quite that bad. You were. I did let my feet do my talking for me. Yes, but, but, but you I, did, and I was silly enough to stick around for another couple of months. Years. You're right. <laughs> yes, years. Years. Right. Years. Right. And, years. And, and yes, that was painful, but I still believe that was the right thing for me to do. Bob had learned all of the lessons that I hadn't learned yet. So I stuck around and learned some more painful lessons that then helped fuel me for, for, for my next roles where I learned I'm not going to do that because I saw it go bad. I saw it go wrong. If I hadn't stuck around, 
I wouldn't have learned those lessons. So to me, it depends on in your career where where you're at, where where the effort isn't worth it. So I finally left because I was working so hard to get this aircraft carrier to turn just a little bit. For six years, I did a lot of work and the aircraft carrier was turning. It was a big org. I saw good things happen and I was still working as hard, but I couldn't get the ship to move. So the return on my investment wasn't there anymore. And I had to learn that. Bob saw it way before I did because he was able to recognize that. And he, he smelled those agile smells that I hadn't learned to smell yet. Right. So why? So I had to learn that. And it stinks. No, yeah, I'm just kidding. Does. Yeah. But it was one of those things where I hadn't learned how to recognize that yet. So it, it was a good few, few years for me to get those bumps and bruises and learn to recognize those things on my own. I couldn't rely on Bob forever. Right? I think it does depend. It's yeah. not, it's your, it's, so there is no answer for this. It, it depends on uh, how much money you have in the bank. It depends on how long you've been in your career. It depends on uh, have you built a personal brand? Uh, it depends on uh, do you, your network. Do you have jobs in the offing, et cetera? Everyone with me? I, I was not, I did not leave companies as quickly when my kids were growing up. Now my kids are all out on their own. So it gives me some flexibility. My tolerance as I've gotten older has gone down, if that makes sense to everyone. My, my tolerance for BS has gone down. So early on, I had BS tolerance. So I would hang in there. And I think that was the right thing. So I think there's skills, there's learning. It's, it's a personal decision. I find, though, that a lot of people hang on to a thread. So a lot of folks are really afraid to leave. Still, it's, it's gotten better over the years, but folks really like anchor to a company. And I, I would actually encourage you to anchor to your brand. So one, one commercial I would say is build your brand. It's so, so build your brand instead of building onto your company's brand and try to create some independence. And Agile is a great place for brand building. Uh, how do you culture or encourage a team member's accountability? So this goes back to that. How do we, how do we raise account? How do we reinforce accountability? So we, it's easy to say an accountable, self-directed agile team. Everyone with me, right? But, but then how do we, how do we reinforce that or encourage that true accountability? Yeah. So when I think about culture and growing and building culture, it gets, it gets down to two things. What do you permit? And what do you promote? Do you promote the good behaviors yep. when somebody is accountable or holds another person accountable in a good way, doesn't throw them under the bus, promote that, talk about that, show people, talk about it, highlight it. When things aren't being handled well, you can't let it continue. If you let it continue, people see that and they go, oh, well, if Bob can do that, I guess I can do that. I don't have to be a good teammate. So you've got to nip it in the bud, right? Just, just like we talked about with the Scrum Master. The Scrum Master early is going to be a lot easier if you can say, hey, Bob, don't do that. Don't act like that. That's not how we want to shape our team and educate him because most likely those mistakes are made because they don't know. They're not done with malintent, right? You usually don't have just bad people that are trying to ruin some other person's day, right? They just don't understand the way they operate, how it's perceived. So you have to educate them. But again, it gets down to what you permit and what you promote. Cool. How do you, how to give QA estimates? Anyone nope. any, anyone in the room have a response to that? So estimate. We're playing. I'm reading between the lines. We're doing planning poker. We're doing story points, and the QA folks are giving story points for QA stuff, and the devs are giving QA points for dev stuff, and the BAs are giving BA uh, points, and the architects are giving architectural points. 
So this is just a subset of that. Everyone with me? And he flippantly said, don't. Do you like that answer? Everyone? No? Terrible? Good answer? Bad answer? Good answer. Okay, I say we good. We gotta give it some meat, though. Well, I mean, it's well, the points are not for function. They're not function right. points. They're right. not silo points. Everyone, they're they're not silo based points. They're cross they're cross silo points, or another way of saying it is they're team based points. So it's it, and they're not points related to the QA lead. Uh, what do they think versus another QA person or a dev lead? They're sort of agnostic. It's they're agnostic. They're not tied to a person, and they're not tied to a silo. They're tied to just work. It's relative work. Everyone, everyone, gonna get right. that. So, so but you may not be there, but that's the intent of the darn things, right? Right. So this is a silo. This is not an agile smell. This is an agile stink, right? This is like this is that's when you have silos either within your teams or within your org, and people aren't playing together. There's handoffs. So that's that's really the meta problem with it, right? It's not. It. I mean, it's the, it's QA estimates. But it's the fact that we really aren't operating at a team level, which is sort of sad and insidious. And Scrum Master's in the room. This is a place for you to shine, right, to break that down, is to take those silos and sort of bring it sideways somehow uh, via some magical team-building exercise. Like, go bowling. You can quote us on that. Bowling magically switches the silos to the side. I'm kidding around. Everyone's looking at me like, bowling? <laughs> How do you do that? So... Hold on, before we go on. So yes. for, for, for the person that's asking that question, the fear I have is that they don't know what it should look like. How should QA be a part of estimation? They should not be, so Bob's dev and I'm QA. Bob says five and I say three. That doesn't mean the answer is eight, right? So what we should be doing is sizing together what it takes to get the product out the door. That's what should be happening. So if you have QA and dev and whoever else giving separate estimates, that's the problem. So if I'm QA, work, I don't together. think just QA, that's my domain, right. but I think based on my experience and based on my intent listening over time and my understanding the domain and my team, I start looking at points from a QA perspective, from a BA perspective, from a dev perspective, from a front end, back end, middle tier perspective. I start broadening my view. Everyone with me? Some of those I'm, some of those I'm less comfortable with, like I may not know. And if I really don't know, I could throw what's nice about the Fibonacci deck is you could throw question marks or infinities and things like that. So you can actually say, I don't know. But but the, the point is to get knowing over time. You can't always just say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, because I'm just QA. You have to start listening and improving your ability to sniff out big ones and little ones and medium-sized ones, et cetera. But that diversity of roles is healthy because you start to get people saying, well, how are we going to test this? Are we testing it the right way? Is this the right approach for testing? And you challenge oh, each other, and we and we that. hold each other. Yeah, well, it goes exactly. back. We start holding each other accountable. Everyone with me as a team. Real quick, I just wanted to say this is an opportunity for dialogue and to ask questions of each yeah. other and to say, I understand yeah. that you say it's a five, and I said it's a three. Why did you say it was a five? And ask that question and find out. Oh, I have to change ten different areas of code. And I only have to test one page. And so it's an understanding, and that's where you learn, and you get an experience level and build. That's what should yeah. happen in, yeah. if you've done planning poker. It's not the number. You should care less about the, not care less, you should care less about the numbers and more about the conversation and the why behind it, right? And everyone has a different why. And then everyone should be listening. That open mind, so be open-minded to the why behind it. You're, you're right on. After three to four years of agile practice, how do you keep the magic? I think the, I think the assumption there is you achieve the magic. So how do you keep the magic? So ma it's kind of like keeping 
Modric healthy, right? Somebody went there. I wasn't going to go there, right? It's, how do you keep the magic? In so there? now I'm hanging on your every word. Well, well, but, so, so what do you got for us, Josh? Well, we've been married 15 years. Uh, I'm not sure I have the answer. But uh, everything you hear is you got to change things up, right? Don't do the same ceremonies the same way forever. Mix it up, right? Again, if you get into this thing where it's a framework, the framework says our daily stand-up looks like this, and you do it forever for three years, that gets really boring and really old. Understand why you're doing the ceremonies and change the way you do them, but keep the heart of why you're doing them the same. So you can't just do the same thing forever. Humans get bored. And when humans get bored, what do they do? They go find somewhere where they won't be bored. So if you don't mix it up and you don't keep it new and engaging and exciting, you're going to lose people. And if you lose people, bad things happen. right? So you've got to spice it up, just like marriage, just like a relationship, just like those things. You're in a relationship with a team. And you've got to think like that. You, what can we do that's different that still keeps us going down the same path? So like a date night? With, maybe a date night. With alcohol right. and stuff like that, maybe? <laughs> sure, that sounds good. I, I, I'm just trying to understand what you're saying. Cool. Thank you. I actually, I have a different, I think it's okay to lose the magic for a bit of time. So I remember I was working at a, a local company, uh, uh, a couple local companies, and I noticed that there was a curve. We were really focused at a couple of companies on accelerating our continuous improvement, if that makes sense. And we really focused on uh, healthy retrospectives. And, and we had a great accountability at a team level. We were pretty mature. And, but over time, like around 18 months, around you know, sort of like 12 to 18 months or so, maybe no more than two years, the, our curve, and we didn't track this in a burn down chart, but our curve flattened out, if that makes sense, everyone. We, we just sort of needed a pause. Uh, and it usually took like three to six months. So we had accelerated continuous improvement, accelerated change. Part of it was related to how much change we were digesting, like the change curves, the J curves for change. And part of it was just, I think, achieving the magic is hard. Continuous improvement is hard. So I actually didn't overreact. I let the teams, I let it be flat for a while, if that makes sense to everyone. I didn't complain. It's like, it's okay. And then we, we allowed the pause that refreshes and then we started looking at, okay, maybe after three to six months, we'll start accelerating again. That didn't mean we regressed. That just means that we were taking a slight break in sort of our excellence. So I wonder, I mean, my advice would be not to overreact. Uh, I think it's human nature to take, like if you're running a marathon, I don't think you're running at consistent speed in the marathon. A marathon is hard. I'm sure people slow down and they speed up and they have adrenaline, and there's certain, there's certain places where it just gets hard, like the 20-mile, I've never, look at me, I've never run a marathon, but I've heard that there are certain places that are slightly harder, and it's okay for you to slow down. Uh, so don't judge yourself. Uh, and the other thing to then accelerate is then remember the magic. Everyone, retrospectives, then how do we re-jump? Well, then re reflect back and review the magic you had as a springboard to get the magic back again. Uh, this sounds painful, but I had to put it here. First steps in breaking in a PO. Well, first they have to get you coffee in the morning when they first come in, the entire team, uh, on their dime uh, at Starbucks. So we want to break them. To, exactly. We want, we, we want to take as much funding from them as possible. Uh, I'm just going to take it the way it's worded. First steps in breaking in a PO. Josh, what do you think? How do we break those suckers in? <laughs> uh, so... Yeah, so <laughs> Dunkin' Donuts. It's hard because that's the hardest role in Agile, without a doubt. So the only way I know to do that is to offer as much support 
as possible. It's a lonely place. So you're saying flip it around. We don't break them in. Yeah. We actually respect the role, God forbid. Right. And, 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 and have some empathy for the role. Right. So think about it. If you're on a PO, you're sitting in the middle. You got a bunch of very opinionated developers that think we should go one way and build things a certain way. You got a business. Would that ever happen? Everyone in the room, opinionated yeah. developer. No, right. no. And then on the other side, you have this business that says, why haven't you built this thing sooner? Why is it already done? And that's hard. You're in the middle. So you got to find a support group. So if you don't have a support group internally, maybe you just have one team. You have one product owner. You need to support them or find them a support group. Get them into agile groups. Get them talking to other product owners. Get them talking to Bob. Get them going to conferences. Get them a place where they can go and find answers. Because you can't just walk into the wilderness of being a PO and expect to come out the other end a shining knight, right, all by yourself. It's going to take a village to get you there. And if your company doesn't have a village, you have to build a village for them. What a metaphor. Thank you. You're a man. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I would say is uh, part of, and it's not breaking them in, but break in the organization for them, is like leadership trust. One of the worst things that you can have is, and I've seen this all the time, is you declare product owners, but really then there's a product manager that the product owners report to, and then there's a meta product manager, and then there's the VP of product. And there's this hierarchy making all of these convoluted decisions. And the poor PO is struggling. No one trusts them. No, they're, they're supposed to sort of be the funnel, the decider, if you will. Like they are guiding their backlog. They're supposed to be empowered. If you read the Scrum Guide, there's empowerment and trust. Organizational trust is supposed to be bestowed on them. But it's really not. It's a facade. So I think actually part of breaking them in is not breaking them in, but, but sort of uh, chartering them in the organization and making sure that everyone has their back. Everyone is sort of is empowering them and connecting to them, understands their role, understands their strengths, doesn't circumvent them. Everyone understand what I mean? Like, you know, there's founders. I've seen founders in small companies and they circum. We have a PO, but no one really no one really trusts the role or respects the role. And that's not a good thing. So I would add that to that sort of that that the nature of breaking it in, but not breaking them in. Right. Because there's so many organizations that don't really understand what a product organization is. And what it should do. That's the fundamental problem is you've got to do what Bob said and educate the company. When you have a product team, this is what they do. It doesn't mean Mr. CEO makes all the decisions and says, here, go do this. Right? You empower the product team to make those choices. That means you've got to have a lot of difficult discussions. Well, and you're out the there with customers right. and you're, you're assessing customers and needs. You're doing studies. I mean, it's a, it's a really deep, broad role. Uh, can you discuss the different agile scaling methods uh, to an enterprise? So this is maybe just like a tool set or something. So we did save. So so there's so there's a bunch of scaling. It's not scaling methods, but maybe frameworks. And safe isn't the only one. Although I think it is the leading. Uh, I think it's leading market share. Uh, so there's Scrum of Scrums. Anyone ever hear of Scrum of Scrums? That is a that is a simple scaling model. I've successfully used it. Uh, up to maybe 25 teams, uh, personally, not as a consultant, and it's worked well for that. Uh, there's something called LESS, a large-scale scrum, L-E-S-S, -S, uh, by Craig Larman um, and Boss. So uh, that's that's sort of an evolution. It's, it's sort of scrum of scrum-like in that it's starting with basic scrum and moving up. So SAFE is sort of a top-down scaling, you know, have the kitchen sink and then introduce it. Uh, Scrum of Scrums is sort of extend Scrum to scale. Less is sort of philosophically that same way. There's something called the Nexus, 
you ever heard that's from scrum.org uh that's less like and it scales that way uh there's dad disciplined agile delivery by uh oh, what's scott scott ambler uh, so, um, less a framework, more for enterprise level, like architecture. I mean, it's sort of framework like, but you can use dad principles in the other ones. And he talks about like, uh, enterprise level architecture, if that makes sense, like cross cutting concerns. Sometimes people bring, sometimes people bring Spotify, Spotify. Yeah, but it's not a framework. It's not really a framework, but they use it in that same terminology. There's one that I've heard a local framework. It has something to do with coffee and police folks. It's called the... The Agile Donut? The Agile Donut. Yeah. Who created that? We did. You? Yeah, we did a dude solution. So we had this uh, we had this challenge of going essentially from zero to 60 as quickly as possible. And I wasn't a big fan in a framework as having that solve all the problems. So we pulled bits and pieces from, ah. say, and again, not one framework is going to solve all of our problems. So we pulled bits and pieces. And in the end, what it really turned into was just Scrum repeated at higher levels. Well, you brought in SAFE. Yeah. You brought in aspects of SAFE. You brought in aspects of um, Spotify. Spotify and, and you kept Scrum basics. Right. And you built But the Scrum was the foundation. So what we found, and Richard questioned me a lot on this, is what's wrong with Scrum? It works. Why not just keep doing that over and over again? So we would do that at the team level. And then at the org level, and we tried to do it at the business level. It worked mostly. Um, we didn't get all the buy-in we needed. There's a row of product owners over there that are feeling the pain of not having the business buy-in completely. Um, but it was working, and it was doing things pretty well. Again, but we didn't look for one. All of those things that he rattled off are good, but they're not the savior. They're not going to solve all of your problems. You have to figure out what your problems are and ask the question, of what problem are we trying to solve? Or are we just putting a framework in just because that's what we should do? We feel like we should have a framework. Is that the right answer? Are you actually solving a problem or are you creating one? So ask those questions. I mean, my advice is start, is start simple and move and move up if that makes sense. So, and you, so I just want, want to be clear. So instead of having this big Gumas thing that we, we introduced from the top down, I would rather organically grow and stay agile principled. And you see that in some of the frameworks that we're extending up, we're learning, and then we're we're adding sort of facilities that that keep the essence of agility, the mindset um, that was that we talked about at the keynote. Keep the mindset and apply scale. And it's really not leaders doing it, but I want the teams to scale. So it's not just pointy-headed leaders deciding the scaling framework and introducing it. It's it's a team organizational thing. So it's organically grown. Go ahead. So bringing in a framework. Um in, in the company that I work in is trying to bring the business under the umbrella of agile so that everyone flows work from the business into the development organization. Yep. Um, that's my question. How do you scale up that way? Is it more of a sales pitch to business and uh, then getting them to think in an agile map mindset um, when you already have the delivery teams working scrum? So, go ahead. What you have to do is you have to like start this like virus growing, right? If you try and boil the ocean, it's not going to work. So find a team, find a subset of the business that's excited about it. Get them rolling with it. Then they'll be successful. And other parts of the org will be like, oh man, they're doing really good. I want to be like them. 
and they'll start to come ask you questions. So don't try and take every department or a whole department, pick a piece of one department and convert that and build this golden team, and then it'll start to spread, right? But if you try and do everything all at once, you make your life really hard, right? So that's that's so again, if you want to start with a framework to begin that, but you've got to start small and grow. I'll, I'll give you a, a concrete example. At Eye Contact, uh, we were we emphasized uh, re we were doing like release trains, so quarterly releases. Um, what we weren't safe really, but we were using quarterly releases, and we would do uh, so sprint demos across 15 teams, and we would do sort of system demos pre-release. Then we would do a retrospective, and we would invite the entire company to these things. And a lot of people showed up. So, so they were very engaged in the transparency, uh, and they were very engaged in what we were doing. And they were also observing our behavior. And I remember Kevin Fitzgerald, our senior VP of sales, when he came to our retros, and this was release retros, so this was the whole company was invited. He, he, he watched how the, the technology folks handled themselves how we handle change. He's like, you guys take the worst feedback in the planet and you don't whine about it. You actually do something about it. And then in the next release, you solve problems. He's like, holy crap. What's, what's, you know, you have great, the right mindset. You listen to feedback. You get stuff done. You're fully transparent. He's like, I want that in my sales team. And so he started drawing scrum into his sales team. Now, to me, it, it didn't make sense, but we, we helped his sales folks start pulling scrum into themselves. That's this infection that Josh is talking about. Don't try to sell it. But so from a business point of view, show them value. If they're bright, capable people, they should be putting the, the you know, doing the math and starting to have that discussion of how do I, how do I engage with the technology to my competitive advantage for my role? And then how do I leverage that in my own function? You with me? That's, that's organizational transformation. Uh, and if you do that very well, that's why I was emphasizing the transparency and the truth talking. Josh, what is your criticism of Agile? Sorry, I was just making sure I knew when we were done. It's top of the hour, right? Yeah, so yeah. I'm going to try and go faster here. We've got 13 minutes, so I'm going to try and go quickly with these. And try so we're even, going, we're even going more breadth over depth. Uh, so what is your criticism of Agile? Uh, it's a buzzword right now, and that's the problem, is that it's the solver of all the things. Of we're going to go Agile, and everything's going to be better, right? So you have to get people to really understand what it is, and what it isn't. So that's a lot of painful education that must be done if you don't educate it. I can remember I was in a boardroom and our CEO was like, well, we have Agile. So that means we're faster, right? And I said, no, that doesn't mean our developers type faster. That's not what this is about. This is about us being nimble and building the right things first and not building the wrong things. That's what it's about. But now it becomes this thing where Agile's everywhere and is a buzzword and people swing it around like dashboards and reports and scrum masters, right? All these terms that nobody really knows what they are, but they say it and they think it's going to solve the world. For me, it's it's the fact that it's very often team, it's viewed as a team word play and not an organizational play. So it's not leadership isn't participating, management isn't participating or not often. Um, I, was one, I was teaching a certified agile leadership class a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago at a client, two months ago actually, and in New Jersey, and at the end of the class, this is like a Scrum Alliance leadership class for a certification. But I thought one of the cool things at the end on the last day, it was a two and a half day class. On, on the last half day we were doing, the, and this was a full leadership team of an organization. So the CFO was there. To their credit, it was, it was the senior leadership team. And they decided not to use Agile. They said it's, it's not doing us a service. The term. They said we're, we're going to stop using the term 
because that's not the goal. The goal is not agile. The goal is business agility. The goal is producing value. The goal is solving, like improving quality. There's different goals and they're like, the term is getting in our way. And I thought that was incredibly powerful for them to sort of recognize that because they were getting to the principles underneath it. So that's, that to me is it's, it's still, we're evolving up the stack and starting to get engaged leaders in the transformation more and more, but it's still very much viewed as a team play. Uh, okay, else? so next one is, as a coach, what are some tips and techniques for dealing with egos and org chart-driven individuals, i.e. managers, tech leads, something else? I, one, one reaction I have is, is clarifying their roles. A lot, of, a lot of times, it goes back to what I just said, a lot of organizations, they don't change the roles of managers. So you go agile, we're going to adopt Scrum, and we do some training at a team level, but we have this pesky middle tier. Sometimes folks call it the frozen. There's a variety of funny names for like the frozen middle, like the leadership tier. The PMO usually falls in there. But we do no training and no, um, no transformation, like telling them, helping them reframe their job descriptions, helping them reframe their roles and their responsibilities. There's none of that. So they're, they're like stuck. It's either do I shut down? Very often these folks are like either in Agile, I have to shut up. And, and go look for another job because everyone marginalizes me, or I don't change at all. And, but they're, they're not hitting that gray area of the evolution. So I think that's, that's part of it is helping them, sort of helping them make that move with training uh, and giving them a role and giving them responsibility. As far as egos, have some conversations with them. Like Josh and I, there's this thing called, there's several models, Crucial Conversations. Uh, Radical Candor is another book. Uh, I would highly recommend it. But what it says is that, you know, if no one, if I'm an obnoxious, if I'm an obnoxious asshole in an organization as a leader and no one confronts me and has that conversation with me at all, even over coffee or whatever, shame on the entire organization. It's not just my responsibility is, you know, yes, I'm an asshole, but no one's telling me that. No one's challenging me on that. No one's explaining to me the cost that has to the organization and the culture. All right. I mean, you know, and if no one's ever had that conversation, with, I may not. I'm going to say something really weird. I may not be self-aware. I may, th I may think I'm the nicest guy on the planet Earth. From my stranger things have happened, and no one is having that radical, giving me that radical candor. And I think we need some of that. But the key is, and what those books do is, they give people a framework to learn how to have those discussions. Yep. You can't just say, "Hey, go have the hard discussion with Bob." Right? Bob might be hard to have a discussion with. Right? Um, but it gives you a framework to how to do it. And as engineers, a framework helps, right? We're talking about framework safe and lesson data and all those things, right? They give you tools of how I can go have a really difficult conversation with Bob and have me feel safe and have him feel safe. Again, don't just send somebody off into the wilderness and say, hey, go talk to this person, right? That's going to be a disaster. Give them tools, give them ways to learn how to have those discussions. Yes, ma'am. Difficult co coworker situation where you coach the team member on their poor behavior, but the leadership team rewards them because they feel that their technical capabilities cannot be replaced in this. Josh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the, I feel like I'm going to give you an answer that's not an answer again. Um, but that's, uh, you know it, right? You know your leadership team, your people management team is failing you, right? Because that person should be gone, right? So I would sit down with that leadership, people, persons, whoever it is, and say, 
here's what I'm seeing with engineer A. I don't understand why you reward him. I actually think the opposite should be happening. And here's why. These are the things. Again, they might not be aware. They might not be paying attention. They might not be in the meetings that you're in. They might not be sitting with the team, um, which I think is a mistake. But maybe that's part of the problem is that they don't see it. They don't understand it. So take an education view and then also come with um, you just asking questions. Don't attack them. Come and say, hey, I don't understand why this is happening. Tell, tell me why you think this person is getting all of this because I actually think it should be the opposite and start there. I mean, I would have that I would have that radical candor conversation, and it's with leadership. So this is not. Let's say you're a scrum master, you have a team or a coach, and you're observing this behavior, and that person reports to someone. I feel like someone should be their leader should be coaching them, uh, not just coaching them about agile, coaching them about good team behavior. We're making an organizational transformation to agile that says stop working as individuals and start working as a, a teams. Last time I checked, right? And team behavior matters, uh, and the effect that an individual has on the team. And we have to start walking our talk. So even a SME. So I've actually, as a leader, I'd, it's not my goal, but I've fired cr incredibly important SMEs, not immediately, but if they weren't jumping on board, someone has to think of the message it sends if we're, don't, we're going agile, but we're not willing to make the hard calls from a leadership perspective, from a team. So we're talking out of both sides of our mouth. So I would initiate those discussions. We can't make them. And I think then it comes back to one of the earlier sort of cards of, Sometimes you have to walk, right? So maybe the leadership team just isn't willing. They're not willing to have those hard conversations. So they're, they may be talking agility, but they're not walking it, right? But you want to be patient with them and have those sort of those conversations. Another real quick thing is take it out of the office. Does that make sense? So try to take coaching conversations out of your context. I like doing coffees and things like that. So going outside or taking outside, sometimes if you get out of the room or out of the building, that helps with some of these hard. And ask permission. To have them so ask permit so don't just go in you know i send you an invitation to a crucial conversation and then bushwhack you at a coffee shop right so so give give some warning and ask permission can i give you some can we schedule a meeting so i can give you some hard feedback right i really need your help and if the answer is no then 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 take the no embrace <laughs> then, then that's giving you information as well so i have a question many many moons ago the first out of the office meeting you had you and I ever had was at a place called Coffee and Crepes. Yes. Was that to hit me over the head and I didn't know it? No. No? Well, the crepes are pretty soft though, right? Okay. Yeah, okay. Right? I'm just so, thinking back, so, like, so, am I not paying attention? So, so hold listening? it, hold it. Really hard head yeah. and soft crepes. Okay, so, all right. So okay. it, was, it was okay. I just, thought, I just felt like maybe I missed something like no, six no, years no. ago. And I wasn't no, no, no. No, you were good. Okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. So how many smaller teams sizing is usually desirable given a regulatory environment at federal level of regulations. I have a hard time uh, keeping teams, some teams small to have forward movement. So, so I would generalize that to say, forget the federal, in general, um, what small teams, how, how important are small teams to keep them, to keep them small, maybe some numbers. Is that the, I don't really understand the question. Who, who's, or whatever the case may be for a customer but then we got security coming in we got the audit people coming in because we need to know what you're doing so they're not and then part they of come it. in and then they stay they don't leave okay <laughs> so real quick real quick they're they're either part of the team they're not 
they're either doing work or they're not. They're sort of not this havesy stuff, like I'm here as an advisor. So sort of draw that boundary. Years ago, I, I worked at Channel Advisor locally and we split, we were growing, we were growing so fast, we, uh, we were growing our scrum teams and then we would grow them to about 10 to 12 to 13, 14 people, then we would split them. So instead of using the growth to drive small teams and growing the teams, we would, we would have large teams and split them when they got too big. And I remember uh, that we split a 12-person team, a scrum team, which is sort of large, into two teams of six. And I remember their velocity doubled as a result of that. Now, I've seen that multiple times, but this is the one that hearkens me that there's a sweet spot in team size. Everyone with me? Uh, and, and that's my sweet spot. And I realized that on the job. Now, I'm not that that sweet spot is different for companies, but small matters. Right. Everyone with. Me, so so there's and, and smaller than seven plus or minus two sort of matters. There was an efficiency. We literally doubled our our throughput or double our velocity by creating two small teams with no magic. There was no magic. And it was all the communication. Everyone with, it was a communication channel. So it was the size of the team and the collaboration overhead and things like that. So that, that reminds me not to go to six, but that small is good and that we should relentlessly be keeping teams at a small level. And I think I heard that again in the, in the keynote this morning, like small teams rock. Everyone with me? Small, small teams rock. Give them a chunk of something to do, uh, you know, and maybe bring the regulators in for coffee once, once a week and then keep them entertained. Take them bowling. But we want to, but we want to, we want to, no, we, we want to keep the teams focused. And we want the BS to be isolated outside of the team. So that's, that's the best I could do there. We have time for more. Oh. We got two minutes. How about some, for some general, like one or two follow-up questions instead of cards? Any follow-up on what we've covered so far? Oh. Yes. So following on from the small teams idea, uh, when you, I agree, right? It's motherhood and apple pie, but uh, how do you manage the dependencies then between those small teams? How do you make sure everybody is uh, able to work safely within those teams without affecting other other parts of the organization? It depends. <laughs> it's we don't have the time. I mean, okay. Steve talked about it this morning. He had a dependency uh, question that came up this morning in the keynote. Uh, it's really like PI planning. One of the reasons I like cross-team planning is it surfaces dependencies. There's no magic for dependencies. It's how you construct your products. So architectural cohesion matters, right. right? And that matters greatly. And then how do you construct your backlogs? How do you have cohesion in your backlogs, like backlogs for teams? So you can construct the backlogs poorly. So the architectural layout matters. The product layout in the backlogs and how we're teasing things out matters. And then how do we plan across team matters? And a lot of folks can do that very badly and they can, a lot of folks can do it well. It requires discipline to do that, but there's no... You know, everyone, not that you're looking for it, but very often I, it sounds like someone's looking for this magical dependency tool that says, you know, how do we, how do we capture all of the dependencies? I think it's human beings being, like teams being accountable for dependency mapping is, is I think the answer. We have to engage the teams in that. Um, that's it. Hope you, hope you had some value in this session, everyone. Yes? Yes. Done? Yes. Done. Thank you. Thank you. So Metacast, meta-cast.com is our podcast, and we will be taking, we will actually be taking some of the stuff that we, we're always looking for topics, so we'll finish the topics on the in future Metacast, and, and some of these things may be juicy enough that we may actually attack it in a whole, in a whole Metacast, so we'll see. Yep. Cool. Thank you. Be careful out there. It's a dangerous, agile environment.